Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Well, kia ora koutou katoa, everyone. I'd like to say welcome back and thank you very much for coming back after a week's hiatus where uh, my tooth tried to do painful things to me and eventually I drilled it back into, well, someone else drilled it back into submission. So thank you very much for coming. Great to see you, Peter, our co-host on the, the Hoon, on the Kaka. Bernard, it's good to see you too. Apparently, you know, you looked like one of those cartoon people last week with a gigantic swollen face and, a, and, a, and an ice pack. Did you see yes. the story actually from Bristol this week of several hundred people queuing up to get access to a, to a new NHS dentist? And one of the big problems in the UK at the moment is the sort of freelance dentistry where people are using pliers and you know fishing 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 line in a door, as my dad did once with me, which I totally understood because it was it wasn't you know when I was thirty. But um, <laughs> anyway, there's yeah. some ugly scenes out there. I mean, this whole area of you know, uh, state-provided, free mm. point-of-access medical care is not working out terribly well in several countries, possibly including New Zealand. I don't know. That's right. Um, uh, NHS has always been a, an outlier in that they paid for that sort of dental care, and in New Zealand we, we don't, and it's become, sadly, um, an indicator of socioeconomic class and uh, income, basically, income and wealth, um, how many front teeth you've got, the older you get. and well, um, like a you. Yeah, well, yeah. No, no, it's it's not good. And it says a whole bunch of things, not just about dental care, but also, you know, at the amount of sugar that flows around our economy. And I always feel awful in supermarkets mm-hmm. walking past the, the Isle of Coke. And it's better now. Jesus, do, do they have an Isle of Coke in Waiheke? My God, yeah. that's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's way bigger than the Kombucha Isle, I can tell you that. And it's always on special. And uh, one of the things I, I love looking at in Auckland is that Chelsea Sugar Factory. In fact, you you, mm. you must um, see it every day. I see it every day. I see it, I see it many times a day. And as you know, one of my favorite things is looking over and seeing whether the sugar ship has arrived. And the sugar ship comes up every, about every six weeks or so. There hasn't been one for a while. And I rather like the sugar ship sits there for about a week and it's little cranes hoist what I assume is some, I still haven't worked this out. I must have to go and have a look at bloody Chelsea at some point because apparently there's a reasonable restaurant there too. But it's not clear to me exactly how the sugar arrives in the ships. You know, whether it's, it's I don't, it's not in cane, but it must be in some other form. No, it's in a, a slightly refined, but not completely refined, um, brown, sugary, sandy type material, oh, which has, which has to know? be... Well, uh, luckily for me, I went across to that factory last year on a visit with on the a Prime Minister... Trip who was a school trip, but like that. All of us press gallery journos trailing around behind the Prime Minister and the head of Chelsea Sugar, mm-hmm. in which they announced a, a new... A sugar tax? Um, n- no, I asked that question, and he yeah. definitely was not going to bring in a sugar tax. And so they said, Bernard, no. this is not the bloody time to ask that sort of question. Yeah. We're, at the, we're at the Chelsea Sugar Factory. Yeah, well, no, they were moving from a gas and coal-fired boiler, which refines yeah. the sugar down t- to an electric one to mm-hmm. um, improve emissions. So it was a, there was a government subsidy involved. I rather like the fact that there is an industrial plant 
in the centre of Auckland, more or less. You know, I mean, what what we need next is a is a well, we probably had it at one point is a um, freezing works. Uh, you know, sort of in Montree Hill or or I mean, certainly not in Hearn Bay, but nobody would notice if we put a put a freezing works into what Westmere or something. It could be associated with the mes- Westmere butchery. Yeah, <laughs> good fun. Uh, the, no, um, interestingly though, we we have a sugar refinery, but we no longer have an oil refinery. Um, mm. It'd be quite nice to turn both of them off, to be honest. Well, actually, I'm I reckon the sugar the turning off the oil refinery was a stupid decision. Will prove to be a stupid decision, and. Um, I was interested to see the the current sort of manager of it saying, no, you couldn't restart it anyway because we just don't have the people. Well, also the company went out of its way to dismantle everything. And it's you're right, uh, Shane Jones wants to bring it back. (laughs) And he's launching an inquiry. Yeah, well, yeah, I mind you, I just listened to, I just looked at something Shane Jones was doing with, uh, oh, it was Corin Dan. Shane Jones is a bloody relic, isn't he? He We are being run by, you know, a set of diplodocus and... Tyrannosaurus rexes and stegosauruses. There's certainly an element of gerontocracy about our democracy at the moment. Yeah. And um, uh, well, as you know, that's one of my favourite words at the moment. Having I did a thing today, and it just reminded me of those last. I mean, I you know, in one of my last jobs, at, well, one of my jobs at Reuters when before you came over to London, Bernard. You know, that eighty eight, eighty nine, watching the Berlin Wall come down was trying. You know, was a classic. You know, when you would talk to what were called Kremlinologists. Mm. And which of these old bastards was going to be looking more and more frail as they sat next to, stood on the Red Square next to Brezhnev? You know, Yuri Andropov, who was who was uh, Putin's great uh, sort of mentor, uh, was was was, was one right? of them. Yeah, mm. yeah, I didn't realize. Yeah. yeah, and they were all veterans of the Second World War, so that completely shaped their view of the world. Many of yeah. them. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And many of them were Ukrainian, of course. Is that right? Which is ironic. Yeah, Khrushchev was was Ukrainian. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And um, Stalin, of course, was from Georgia. Yeah, Stalin was. Absolutely. Yeah. Lots of useful facts uh, this week on The Hoon. I know. I think I've told you I have been to the, to the possibly I've, I've bored everybody with this already, but I can't thoroughly recommend both Georgia, but particularly a visit to the uh, Stalin Museum, which was built in his mm. lifetime in about 1937, I think which is by far the biggest building in his hometown of Gorey, which is about, it's, the building is probably not much smaller than the Auckland War Memorial Museum, as it used to be called. I think it's called wow. the Auckland Museum now. And it is stupendous. There wow. is some serious shit there, including his death mask, which I was, anyway. Wow. So what are we going to talk about today, Bernard? I mean, I, I wanted to talk to you about the Treaty of Waitangi and yes. what I think is very sly and cunning little David, David Seymour. But uh, we're also going to have Catherine come on, I think. Yes, to talk about the latest uh, in the climate um, situation, some big developments here locally as well, and also internationally. Uh, we're now into the second month of the year, and temperatures are going nuts, uh, and things are starting to get very ugly on the climate front. We'll talk about that, and then we'll have uh, Robert Patman on again to talk about uh, what's happening in the Middle East. It's all very urgent and um, pressing and important, and New Zealand is involved. And uh, we'll we'll talk also, uh, no doubt, about what's going on in uh, other parts of the world, particularly Ukraine and the United States, with uh, an election now that's getting comfortably close. Um, uh, that will all be good fun. And then there's been plenty of news here in Aotearoa as well, with the um, absolutely extraordinary. And some of it is, was recycled from last year. 
there's that some of that speech from from um, Christopher Luxon. It really was a copy and paste job. Um, he is turning he, into the he is turning into the Rishi Sunak of New Zealand politics. Ooh, I'm sure he would he would thank you for that in public, but in private, maybe not. Yeah. Um, and Rishi Sunak would go who? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, but th- they have some elements of similarity. Both of them do a lot of corporate speak. And the a number of times I hear the word outcomes from the Prime Minister is too many times. Well, we're here to deliver, Bernard. The, reali- the reality is New Ze- we're just here to deliver for all New Zealanders. Outcomes. We've got outcomes galore. Outcomes for all New Zealanders. Yeah. The outcomes may be not what you intended, but, but you know, we're going to have outcomes. And uh, when there's coming to be done, it's going to be... Oh, there you go. No, it's, it's, anyway. it's, it's not a, a, a great auspicious start to the year for the Prime Minister, I think. He seemed to not read the room in Waitangi um, in that um, he read a speech from a year ago and just read it out again. Well, I think it would have been would have been perfectly fine to say, I said this last year and mm. I stand by that. And here's another thing I said last year and I stand by it. We are serious about this. I am a serious person and I'm really concerned about you know the outcomes for all New Zealanders and I'm going to deliver on it. Well, he did after the fact, but only yeah, after but, not... Exactly, but after the fact, it's just too late. And I think mm. if you're going to, uh, you know, pretend to be profound, at least do it in a way, you know, that there's there's a classic male thing, which everybody listening to this podcast will know. I said, everybody listening to this podcast will know is that men who want to be listened to and are used to being listened to tend to repeat themselves. They repeat themselves, Bernard. Yeah, they do. And, but they do it um, transparently. Transparently and um, exactly. repeatedly. Um, no, that's quite quite right. Um, a big week on in Waitangi, and I think what I found most interesting was the uh, number of people, the strength of opinion, this idea that um, for the first time um, there was a lot of uh, united opposition to one particular government and party. And if there's one achievement of the um, new coalition, it's to unite a bunch of people who aren't always uh, united. Mm. And also some of the comments from people that I saw reported back, one in particular from a young woman who was nursing a baby on her hip and was so impressed to um, be there and obviously very passionate about it and said uh, that um, she cared about it so much that she had flown all the way from Australia where she lived. Gosh, that's amazing. I mean, I it, it is really interesting. I mean, I, I don't fully understand the Ratana, uh, not just the Ratana movement, but that that why the Ratana thing has become such a, a, a sort of phenomenon. I want to know more about that. But I do understand quite a, a little bit about the um, Waikato and the, and the Turanga Waiwai, and that meeting was extraordinary. And the sort of the skill and uh, effectiveness of the arguments that Māori um, are I mean, they shouldn't have to do it on themselves, and in fact, they don't. But uh, are rallying behind this campaign are pretty extraordinary. Yeah, and the the way that um, Tainui came up to uh, Waitangi to join in—that's not a regular thing, and is certainly um, mm. important and shows a level of uh, change in the um, level of unity against what the government's planning. Catherine yeah. is um, hi, Catherine is back with us. Great to see yeah. you, Catherine, and. Um, a uh, lot's happening in the climate uh, world in the last couple of weeks. Um, thank you for um, g- keeping an eye on it, and we'll be putting out your uh, wrap-up tomorrow. In particular, uh, what are you hearing about about the issue of climate sensitivity? This is, uh, you know, how much extra 
heating uh, is happening because of the um, the heating that's gone before, and and in particular the role of uh, clouds in all of this. Could you tell us about what you what you're hearing? Okay, so this is something that there's always been a lot of debate over over time, and and there's a, a current consensus that sits equilibrium climate sensitivity between about two and a half and five degrees. And what that means is if you double the amount of um, CO2 in the atmosphere compared to pre-industrial times, how much does that boost the temperature? Right, so double CO2, how much temperature increase do you get? And so there's been all sorts of studies done on it, but there's always been a bit of debate. And it came up again when Hansen... James Hansen and his team put out the paper warming in the pipeline, and we've talked about that before. What I was commenting on this week is that there was a a video, a YouTube video that was going around that a lot of people were watching that was done by um, a German theoretical physicist by the name of Sabina Hossenfelder. And it was quite an interesting video. So she was looking at some of the evidence around challenges to climate sensitivity and particularly the way um, some of the models have been running hot. So the IPCC scientists use a set of, um, combine a whole set of 50 to 60 different models in order to figure out what the temperature is doing in the future. So that it's a combination of a lot of different different individual models. And about 10 of these have been running hot since about 2019. Um, and the reason they've been running hot is because they were starting to add in new data about the way that clouds affect mm-hmm. um, climate change. And up until 2019, clouds, we know that clouds can both add to heating and can also create cooling. So the cooling effect is because clouds will reflect energy from the sun back out into space. So that stops the sun's energy getting through and that has a cooling effect. But they can also have a greenhouse effect by trapping heat underneath them. So reflecting energy back down to earth that way. And up until 2019, the, the consensus was basically clouds are really complex. We know they have heating and cooling effects. Let's assume that they kind of cancel each other out and we'll just leave them out of the models in the meantime. And after about a decade of of different bits of research, they started to put some of the data from that research into the models, and this is what was causing some of the models to run hot. And what the scientists decided when they looked at that was, well, these hot models, they don't really they don't really replicate the historic record very well. The existing models do a better job of that. So they decided to wait the inclusion of those models in that in that combined set according to how well they replicated history or the paleoclimate mm. record. And so the hot models got down-weighted, basically, in the, in the set. Hot, hot models are something we can do with a lot more. Yeah. No, no, no. We, we've got too much hotness in the world, and I'm I'm very interested in... in, in, in I feel like what... you've got a stray from the conversation, Peter. <laughs> yes, um... <laughs> I'm very interested in the sensitivity of how much a doubling of carbon in the atmosphere uh, creates, because this is actually really important in terms of all of the current models and uh, consensus has sort of looked through these cloud effects, and by by necessity, because it's uncertain, it's meant that the modelling uh, has come up with 
relatively small increases in temperature. But what you're saying, Catherine, is that people are starting to look at this again and match it up with the current data and the previous data and going, and we're a little bit worried here, guys. It looks like it might get a lot hotter a lot faster than we first thought. Is that right? Yeah. So Sabina Hossenfelder, she's got her own channel on YouTube where she covers a lot of different science. And the the channel's called Science Without the Gobbledygook. So she's trying to make it a bit simpler to understand. And so the the video that was going around was just one where she was discussing these issues about climate change and about the cloud effect. So the we'll include a link to the to that video. She does a really good job of explaining um, what's happening with the science and why these discussions are happening. Um, but she also starts to talk about there's one particular uh, model that is run by the UK Met Office, and that model is unique in that it can also look at short-term climate as well as the long-term mm-hmm. climate. It can be adjusted and retooled to look at, at more short-term forecasts. And so that team, they were running one of the hot models, so that included some cloud data. It made their model run hot. They decided rather than looking to see if their model worked versus the paleoclimate record, they decided to, to see whether this data w- worked in their short-term model. So would their data help them to make a better short-term forecast? So they looked at it from a five-day forecast perspective, and they found that their cloud data improved their forecast in the short term. And oh. so that kind of made them think, maybe our cloud data is right, and the problem is something to do with the paleoclimate data that we're comparing it to. Is the essential aspect of that is that that we can in fact attribute more to the weather? You know, what more there's more climate change evident in weather patterns? No, it's not. It's, it doesn't really say anything about how well we can attribute climate change to short-term weather. This is more just about is our cloud data accurate? Is it doing a good job of saying this is mm-hmm. what what clouds are contributing to things? And over that whole decade of of study of clouds, what they've kind of found is rather than clouds being neutral in the climate models, they probably have a heat amplifying effect. So yeah. they're probably heating things up more. Um, but what what this this one study, and it is just one study, and there's a whole lot of other studies that say different things that confirm the consensus. But what that study did, did do is say maybe the problem is with the paleoclimate record. And it just so happens mm-hmm. that that's what James Hansen and his team has been saying that there is a problem with the paleoclimate record and that there are times in history when the actual temperature ran hotter than what our records are saying um, and that they need to update oh, that. Oh, really? Oh, well, so so you mean it doesn't exist? So the, hist- the historical curve is no longer upwards, you know, it's fine? The the way Sabina Hossenfelder puts it is she says, unfortunately, the the dinosaurs neglected to upload their satellite records to, <laughs> to tell us what the clouds were doing. And so we kind of have a few gaps. Speaking of, this, this show has been about dinosaurs from the very start. And speaking of which, did you see this week Lee Anderson, the former chairman of the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party in the UK, was saying that, um, you know, as far as I know, coal and oil were laid down by, by over millions of years by dead trees and animals. If that's not sustainable fuel, then I don't know what is. And I am not kidding. <laughs> wow, that's really worrying. <laughs> the, the other thing I saw, Catherine, this week that is kind of interesting because you've talked about it a bit is the uh, NASA PACE monitoring satellite went up, uh, I think, today or yesterday, yesterday, and it is going to do this analysis of aerosols, not arseholes because we do that slightly differently, but aerosols and things like the plankton 
and that thing that you and I've talked about a bit about the Albedo problem with um, ships no longer burning the same level of shipping oil, uh, meaning meaning that they're having less of a, less of an effect in in reflecting heat back. That kind of right. thing. Have you have you looked into that at all? What's happening with pace? I, I haven't really looked into what is happening with pace, um, but I I guess when that information starts to come through, that's going to help um, the scientists that are currently looking at the stuff to figure out who's right and who's wrong here. Because mm. you know the situation at the moment is that there's a challenge going on to the consensus about you know how oh, fast yes. climate change is happening, um, and this what we're talking about just kind of adds new lines of evidence into into that debate but it's it's still unclear because there are still you know a lot of different studies and a lot of different evidence and we're still waiting on the experts to kind of relook at what's our consensus here um so that information will all feed into that i'm sure and Catherine, on this on this idea of a consensus there there seems to be another consensus emerging particularly in countries with a strong right wing or an emerging right wing government possibly even an emerging centre-right to right-wing uh, coalition government, that they're starting to backslide on various net-zero commitments, uh, whether it's to electric cars. You've seen electric car sales collapse in the UK and in New Zealand. It was very notable today that uh, when they abandoned the or announced the abandonment of the, of the Auckland fuel surcharge, Simeon Brown and, and uh, Christopher Luxon talked about how much it would t- cost to fill a Hilux, which is the Toyota Ute, you know, they talked about the uh, and and this whole sort of we're no longer. I, I understand it from a sort of libertarian point of view, but we seem to be. A, and also, the UK, I think, last week announced twenty four new um, permits for drilling for oil and gas in the North Sea. There's a lot going on in that sort of political politico environmental area. Yeah, there's actually a really interesting analysis that was done on Climate Action Tracker, where they looked at. Uh, whether there had been any advance since the Glasgow COP conference, whether there had been any advance on the pledges that countries have made and whether it's got any further. And what they found is that things haven't moved at all for the last three years. Um, whereas yeah. the way that the Paris Agreement is set up, it's supposed to have a ratcheting effect, which means that you lock in all the pledges that have been made and then you raise them again the following year and you raise them. And this them. is the opposite. That's, But isn't that what's the opposite that's going on at the moment, Catherine? That everybody's finding it too hard? Yeah, I mean, so far those pledges are still in place. So people haven't actually officially said we're not going to meet our pledges. But there is some question marks about how that's, you know, how that is looking for some countries. You know, some countries are looking like the pledges are going to be a little bit difficult to achieve or they're running behind mm. on them at the moment. Um, and uh, certainly there haven't been any updates or advances on pledges that amount to anything much over the last few years. So, yeah, it's it's worrying. Yeah. Do you do you detect a rather coordinated approach on this or is it is it just because I read too much news that I see a rather coordinated approach to resiling from agreed science resiling from agreed agreements, or as in the case of the UK, when I see Rishi Sunak, he's essentially not admitting that they're not going to meet their goals through the, through the ways that they'd intended to, but he's just, he knows he won't be prime minister when the, when the bill comes in. Yeah, I don't know if it's coordinated or not, but I do know that when some of the bigger countries start to make those sort of noises, they open the gate for others to... You know, yes. it, it, they they start to normalise the idea that oh, we're going to 
continue to burn fossil fuels or we're going to look for, you know, like it, it, it makes it okay for other countries to follow suit. So it is worrying when you see mm. some of the, the bigger countries or some of the countries that have in the past been climate leaders starting to make noises that are... Just being, yeah, they're losing their courage to be the leaders. That's the... Yeah. We, we see that going up and down with different governments, you know, as to how committed they are to doing these things. So it may just be a phase, but yeah, it's certainly three years is a long phase for things to not be moving forward. So actually, if you watch the Hossenfelder video, one of the things you also see is about um, what what may unfold in the next 20 to 30 years is she's predicting that at some point people will just stop will forget about climate change and stop trying and there'll be a lot of geopolitical disagreements about things and conflicts and you know so she's suggesting that you know a path into the future that is based quite a bit on on um, some of the studies that have been done on um, more kind of um, right-wing aligned moves and you know all sorts of different things that that are likely to happen yeah, Labour in the UK today abandoned its its supposed twenty eight billion dollar a year commitment to do the kinds of green things that the Inflation Reduction Act does in the United States because they don't want to have a stick to beat them with. Joe Biden is is facing enormous reaction to his to his decision to reduce the number of liqui- permissions for exporting liquefied natural gas from the US, despite of course the fact it's keeping Europe going. Trump says he'll immediately you know, turn that over. It's a very delicate phase, I think. Yeah. And um, the real concern for me in the last week or so on this is the European Union's decision to row back on its restrictions on methane um, Mm. emissions from farmers after all these farmers' protests. And this is a real issue. Catherine, thank you so much for being on the show. Great to have you on. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again next week. And of course, there's a much more detailed climate wrap, which will go out to subscribers tomorrow, including a chat between myself and Catherine. We didn't get to the news about the big uh, high court victory for uh, yes. uh, climate campaigners here. Um, that will be one to watch. Uh, high court or Supreme Court? Because it was the Supreme, Supreme court, court that overturned. Yes. It, it, Supreme Court overturned an appeal court judgment, didn't it? That's right. And it's allowing uh, Mike Smith, uh, an iwi climate um, campaigner, to have a go at this big six. Mm. That's exactly where sort of jurisprudence comes in. Robert, you handsome devil, are you You don't look as Good though afternoon. you've been for a swim today. Uh, no, no. Don't, don't you have a lap pool in the office? I, th- I thought you had a, a lap pool just outside. No, the- no, no. Times are hard in universities, Peter. <laughs> it's great to see you. And, and it, it has been quite a busy old period simply because of the dramas in the Middle East, the, the way that New Zealand has become involved. What's your assessment at the moment of how New Zealand's involvement, support for the attacks on the Houthis in Yemen is, is playing out and you know um, whether we'll live to regret it? Well, it's a difficult one to, to judge, isn't it? But one of the things, there's two aspects to this. There's the practical aspect or the logistical aspect. To what extent will that small team of six NZDF personnel be at risk? Because so far, the UK-US strikes or the US-UK strikes, in which we know that New Zealand supported, it was a joint statement by all the participants indicating that New Zealand and Australia had supported the latest strikes. I'm not sure exactly the role, but uh, judging by some, uh, I think, statements from our defence minister and the foreign minister suggesting that they're they're largely in an intelligence role, those six NZDF 
uh, falls, and also in helping to do things like targeting particular areas uh, in Yemen. Where they're based, I'm not quite sure. Uh, we know they won't be anywhere going anywhere near Yemen. So there is a risk that if this strategy of deterrence doesn't work, and there's no signs it is working, the Houthis actually seem to be relishing the US-UK strikes. Wouldn't, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you, if you if you were a bunch of, let's say, ragtag rebels who have a lot of AK-47s and some fairly shitty-looking motorcycles and, you know... Are All you need is a Hilux. Exactly. And a couple of Hiluxes, exactly, thanks to the U-Tax. But, you know, the, you, they are now a focus. Yeah, but they're, 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 they're no mugs. They're no mugs when it comes to fighting. I exactly. mean, this and- is something else. Uh, they stood up to the two best air forces in the Middle East, which is the Saudi Saudi Air Force. Yep, two of the best, not the two best. Uh, I think Israel probably has a bit of an edge there, and, and also the UAE, uh, supported by the United States, the Houthis. We've stood that sort of pressure for two two years and gradually edged forward. So, with the support of Iran, so there is the if this strategy doesn't work, if it doesn't deter the Houthis, uh, and that clearly that both the United States the United States has said that's the point of these strikes. To but there's degrade. no sign there's no sign, Robert, that it is deterring them in any way, shape or form, no. is it? So and that raises the question, if it escalates, that may have implications for the six that are there. Yeah. I, I just just I should I should flag that um you and Helen Clark are in a uh, an item I wrote. This is definitely self promotion and also just I would like all of our hundred and eleven reader skirt and buy the listener because it would probably increase its sales by certainly hundred and eleven. Um there is a piece <laughs> coming out in tomorrow's listener with you and Helen Clark quoted on this and discussing this with me, which is very, very kind of you to talk to me again. But those six people, it would appear, I mean, one of them, according to John Stevenson, an investigative journalist who worked with Nikki mm. Hager on various things, is an SAS person who's apparently like, like relatively senior, but also we do apparently, based on based on work I've done previously about the New Zealand contribution to Ukraine, which has been both in Brussels at NATO headquarters, uh, I think at High Wycombe at the RAF headquarters, mm. and in this training role, you know, they are not sitting there changing toilet rolls when the busier people are going off to do other things, it would appear. If they're in targeting and they're in, uh, you know, um, target target selection, I suspect target selection, would you say, would be the yeah. a high likely area where they're going through the um, satellite and, and other imagery of the, of the locations? Because, you know, when you look at the Houthis and you think, what sort of command and control thing? I mean, it's probably some guy's house with a, with a Starlink. But it's easy with all this high technology that we have, that the United States, the UK, and allied countries have at their disposal. We shouldn't underestimate their determination, the Houthis. Mm. And that th- takes me to a second point. There is, if the deterrence is not working and we're part of an escalating situation, that may be a concern for people in this country. But the second point is this looks like very selective concern about breaches of international law. Yeah. Of course, we have a legitimate and I think justified concern about illegal actions in the Red Sea. But we also have a legitimate and justified concern about breaches of law uh, in Gaza. And one, by the way, the government's position, there's no linkage between them, uh, strains credulity. Yeah, it's getting it's getting sillier and sillier. And I admit that when I interviewed you on this last week for the, for the, for the listener piece, I, I wasn't entirely bought into the to the Patman view on this about that about <laughs> that um, 
Few um, people ambiguity are, or, or dichotomy. No, <laughs> I, I support you to the hilt. Um, but you know, now I've seen this week, and I put them in my spin-off thing. The IDF is investigating the uh, a potential war crimes by Israeli soldiers, and there, there's an investigation going on to, into the killing of I think twelve hostages in a in a kibbutz. You know, one of the kibbutzes yeah. on October the seventh, whether they were in fact killed by an Israeli tank shell. I mean, some of these things started to dribble out in the very beginning, and then they were kind of not suppressed deliberately, but sort of just got lost in the whole horror of October the seventh. Uh, and then you've got this uh, Hamas claim or Gazan claim, reported so far as I can see, only on Al Jazeera, of uh, mass mass graves being discovered in Gaza yes. of um, people in body bags are being being thrown in. I mean, I, I think the trouble is once you start a conflict like this and you send young men and women in who can also continue to post to social media their deeds, which they're understandably proud of, except not understanding perhaps the ramifications of it. This is this is behaviour that is unprofessional. They, the uh, Israeli IDF forces have uh, filmed themselves uh, humiliating yes. Palestinian civilians who've had nothing to do with the Hamas attack. And I'm talking about young children. Yeah. And um, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is an international disgrace, this situation. It points to the impotence of the UN Security Council, and it points to how dysfunctional international institutions are. As a result, 27,000 Palestinians many of them civilians, 70% of whom are women and children, have lost their lives while the mm. world has watched. And that's really not good enough going forward. And we need, our country should be having a voice on this. One of the things that concerns me, Peter- Well, we've now blocked off the possibility of having a voice on this, I think, Robert, don't you think? In a well, way? no, I, I, I don't think we have entirely, but I agree with you. We've certainly taken a backward step. But what I'm, what I'm saying here is one thing that worries me a lot is that I think many countries expected New Zealand to be the voice of reason speaking out on this issue at an earlier stage. And yep. uh, we did do the right thing in the UN General Assembly, as we discussed before, twice voted for an immediate humanitarian truce, but then we did a U-turn and supported the power that had blocked our diplomacy in the UN General Assembly, So, and did it through the Security Council, of course. So this could harm our diplomatic standing. And it certainly, it looks very selective. It would be very interesting to interview Winston Peters in a calm and thoughtful way about this without him saying you need an education. I, I was struck also, Robert, you saw Netanyahu today talk about total victory again. Fantasy. And it would appear that the IDF is now moving south towards Rafa, which may be where uh, Senya, the, the Hamas leader, is based. But, you know, this is going to get very nasty with Egypt very soon if you've got nearly a million people sitting at Rafah. Also, Mr. Netanyahu has been quite, I think, he's been really snubbing, that's probably the best way of putting it, the Americans. Uh, you know, there's a, a deal going in the works involving the Qataris who's doing the yeah. mediation. And it looks like the Israelis have kicked this back and uh, the Americans are not happy about it. And of course, the Americans are not particularly happy when they keep seeing their two-state solution yeah, exactly. for the day after being rubbished by the leader that they're generously arming. 
Exactly. Poor old Blinken. How do you feel about him, you know, traveling? Because let me just also say that one of our readers in bed with Daleks, as it were, which is pretty weird when you think about it, says, Professor Patman, I'm impressed every time I hear you speak, exclamation mark. Thank you for your thoughtful and compassionate discussions here. Oh, I thank you too. Oh, thank you. You've got Anthony Blinken zooming around. It's his fifth trip to the Middle East since October the 7th. And let me just put a positive tone here that something weird is happening that I've, I've asked you about before, but it's even weirder and more strong today, is Saudi Arabia is taking an extraordinary lead in saying what its terms are for a deal with Israel, which is very strongly two-state solution, 1967 borders. It is so interesting. It is interesting. What's even more interesting is that Anthony Blinken publicly spelt out the Saudi terms with apparent approval. Yeah. And he said, the, you know, the two things being, of course, there must be a, a clear and pathway for a Palestinian state and there must be an immediate ceasefire. And one of the things that struck me as slightly tongue-in-cheek here is that he seemed to approve of these statements. But, of course, the United States has been resisting the permanent ceasefire that Saudi Arabia has been demanding. So, so watch Riyadh, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think he's beginning... Look, I think the Americans are close to breaking with Netanyahu. Mm. I, I really think their strategy from the outset was to, with an election looming, was to do everything on the surface to be backing Israel, and indeed in substance. I mean, the Americans weren't joking when they said at the outset, we will give everything Israel needs to deal with this problem militarily, and they have. Yep. Uh, but... I think the strategy was based on the fact if we're seen to be a loyal ally of Israel, as we always are, we can then, through private diplomacy, rein them in when we want to end it. And I think that is really reaching, the, you know, the, a crunch point now. Are the Israelis uh, going to stop when the Americans demand it? Yeah. Well, clearly no. Robert, let me ask you about Ukraine, please. We've got this weird interregnum going on at the moment where the Iranians, the Ukrainians haven't got any money out of out of the US Congress because of this weird, uh, the, the failure of this weird omnibus bill. We believe that they've, that uh, Zelensky has asked about, uh, told the Americans that he intends to fire Zeluzhny, the, the military commander. Yeah. How are you seeing Ukraine, the Ukraine at the moment? Is, is Putin just sitting in Moscow rubbing his hands and talking to Tucker, Tucker Carlson, waiting? No, no, he continues to have daily disasters, unfortunately, for Mr. Putin, and he's coming under a lot of pressure with uh, wives of military personnel in Russia widely protesting, uh, which is gathering momentum. Also, the degree of sabotage now in Russia is, you know, is quite dramatically high. Yes, he will be encouraged by the Tucker Carlson interview and once again, Mr. Carlson presenting himself as the only true journalist in the Western world. Absolutely. Which is, uh, you know, he he did say, I, I had to laugh at this one. I mean, you know, if you don't cry, laugh, you cry. But on this particular point, I was amused when he said, I'm the first journalist in the Western world to actually have the imagination to ask Mr. Putin for an interview. Of course, hmm. CNN and BBC immediately reacted to that and said, no, 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 no. Well, there's also there's also two of them in jail at the moment, for Christ's sake, you know. I mean, this yeah. is just—it's the most extraordinary thing. And I, you know, I—I—the I, I, trouble is, you become sort of self-serving media people on this. I, for me, the most worrying aspect of this is the support uh, from Elon Musk to all of this, and oh, yeah. the 
abuse of that of the X platform by by the richest man in the world to promote really weird conspiracies and sort of hallmark card slogans. Well, it, it is extraordinary that significant sec- segments, political sectors within the United States, the MAGA elements in the Republican Party are backing Putin. They are backing an outright invasion of a democracy, which is absolutely extraordinary. And then there was Trump's, even by his standards, he surpassed himself recently when he said <laughs> to, an, an, to an enthusiastic audience that he could assure them that Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, and Kim Jong-un are all very fine people. Absolutely. Yeah, and that there wouldn't be a war if I was president, yeah. Robert, it's lovely to see you. Uh, thank you, you so much again for doing this. I, I feel really, I feel as though it's the end of a season when you're not in your um, little place um, going for a swim. In Lake Harwea, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Julian, great to see you. Great to see you. Are you standing against um, Chloe? I am not. That would be a golden ticket. If you Could you stand with her? <laughs> no, 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 no. I think, uh, yeah, so far, Chloe's the only one putting her hand up to be co-leader with Marama Davidson. But we do have a kind of requirement in the party now, instead of one female and one male co-leader, that we have at least one Tangata Whenua mm-hmm. co-leader. Fair so. Do you not qualify as Tangata Whenua yet? Uh, I'm definitely not. I'm definitely Tangata Tariti. Isn't that Tangata Tariti a really interesting phenomenon that's come up in the last couple of weeks? how Pakeha people use that phrase. It's so interesting to me. I think Action Station really pushed it. Um, I've heard it for a long time, but I've never seen it shared so much on social media. And I think mm. Action Station and some others did some good organizing to promote that message. Uh, Julianne, thank you very much for, for coming on. Uh, just jumping onto this um, huge issue in Wellington. As a Wellington MP and also uh, the Green spokesperson for building and construction, economic development, infrastructure, transport, and urban development. This really is right in your wheelhouse to see the independent hearings panel report come back on the district plan changes brought on by the National Policy Statement for Urban Development and the medium density residential standards. This, for me, has been one of the most uh, sort of shocking and weird developments in in the usually fairly nerdy <laughs> business of following what's happening to district plans you you you're um you know by profession uh someone who who reads these things and maybe helps write them at some point what did you think looking at the 300 pages or so of the 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 IHP report this week i think terrible is a word i would use to describe it just abysmal shocking in terms of the almost confirmation bias approach to evidence. Mm. I couldn't believe that a fair-minded panel of people could look at the evidence and claim that there's no evidence that zoning influences housing supply and therefore affordability. Oh. <laughs> it was bizarre. But, but zoning is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Say that to somebody who's who wants to buy a house in, in a double grammar zone. Yeah. Um, you know, no, I mean, it, it's just ludicrous. No, it, it is uh, one of those things where you do wonder what on earth is going on here. How how did they manage to receive submissions from all sorts of people with lots of resources? You know, kind of order, I'm sure. Um, 
you know, there were lots of um, very well um, credentialed and backgrounded people who put their thoughts forward. And for them to come out and say just so boldly that the laws of supply and demand don't work in housing somehow, when it's clear from the evidence on rents and prices in Wellington, the amounts of consents per thousand people and the level of constraints on densification, the very clear separation between Wellington and Auckland and Christchurch, where there has been more densification allowed mm-hmm. and encouraged, not enough in my view, but um, uh, yep. there. That's right. What do you think's going on here? It's, it's like someone caught a virus or something. What's what's going on? I, I genuinely don't understand other than I'm very interested to know who appointed the commissioners. It is potentially a problem that there is a bias amongst people who are commissioners who are able to be on the sort of hearings panel that they come Mm -hmm. from the planning profession and therefore might actually be more biased to see zoning and restrictive uh, controls on what people are allowed to build as, as okay, because that was the the core of the profession for many decades. As someone, a qualified planner, I have mainly been arguing against planning rules uh, because so Mm. many of them are counterproductive to the outcomes we actually want to achieve. But I also like studied economics before I did planning. So maybe that changed my perspective on it. It's not that, I mean, I'm inherently, I believe in public housing. I believe in a public democratic approach to what is built where. But uh, generally, since the 1960s, planning rules have created low-density car-dependent sprawl, mainly because it Mm. was imported from the United States. A lot of the zoning that came out of the United States was motivated by a kind of racial segregation approach that was, you know, and once we start to look back on that and understand that those are the origins. Gosh, that's an interesting one to to think we imported to New Zealand, Julianne. That's a very interesting yeah. So did you see did you see the comment that the um independent hearings panel had said they could not accept or admit evidence that was referred to in a submission by someone from the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development where they were referring to research that they had done themselves and but because the person speaking wasn't the person who'd done the research somehow they couldn't admit that evidence? Yeah. yeah. It was very bizarre. There was there was some really interesting sort of weird things that came out through the report. The idea, for example, that people couldn't use uh, cycles in Wellington because they weren't very good at cycling back uphill. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. But Rongatai already, before we had bike lanes, Rongatai, my electorate, had the fourth highest cycle journey to work mode mm. share. That's from like years mm. ago. And that's b- before everyone started buying e-bikes and before we got bike mm. lanes. So... What is going on? I don't know. But it does kind of demonstrate, I guess, the risk of this sort of technocratic process that it mm. could undo what the public actually wants. Yeah. but And also, of course, do we, do we have to respect them democratically somehow, Bernard and Julianne? Do we have to listen to them? I mean, they presumably have, you know, there's a role that they've been given. Or are they no better than Auckland citizens and ratepayers? No. Ultimately, you know, politicians representing voters in council elections will be the ones to give the final decision on the district plan. The proposals that have come back from the panel 
now go before the full council. There's a vote on March the 14th, and that looks like must-see TV for, for me. It could be a day in front of um, a long, very long and painful live stream, but it's uh, it's going to be one of those key moments, in, in my view, a bit like the 2016 Auckland Unitary Plan hearings, yeah. which for me were like watching a crucible of a battle between the young and the poor against the uh, old and, frankly, the white, who did not want all these new people living near them and weren't didn't want to pay for it. And the young and the brown of Auckland standing up and saying, this is my city, I want to live here, I want to build a family and a community yeah. here, and um, please let me live in a, a townhouse or an apartment. It doesn't have to be a villa, and uh, please let me be part of this place. And eventually, some semblance of, of sanity reigned, although not nearly as much as I would have liked. But it's very clear now, that 2016 decision by the Auckland Council after the unitary plan process led to a large number of building consents. And mm. it is true that the um, the rents in Auckland fell relative to other cities during that period and relative uh, to incomes. It could have been worse. And also, when you look at the downzoning that happened in Wellington between uh, 2005 and 2013 as well, Wellington has become this place from the past where the people who run the show won't allow any buildings for young people and are quite happy to see young people crucified with rents they can't afford and seem quite happy and perhaps surprised when they can't recruit anyone and all the people that they've just trained up and employed are desperate to leave and go and live in Australia. It, it is an astonishing thing. Julianne, just on that, on that note, um, what would you like to see the, the City Council and the councillors um, do now uh, that they've got the report? Well, I, I do think it's worth noting that the council, as it is now, did vote to uh, allow greater density in many of these suburbs then and it's been the independent hearings panel who've now recommended against that and put the character zones back on even in the neighborhood where i live the council has the ability to reject the recommendations but it mm -hmm. is complicated because they sort of have to accept them in full or reject them in full or there might be a partial thing and then that needs to be signed off by the minister and at the moment it's the Minister for the Environment, but it's possible that the Minister of Housing, because he's also the minister responsible for RMA reform, could be the one mm -hmm. to sign that off. But if they reject the hearing panel, they have to get ministerial sign-off, basically. So ultimately, this is this is going to end up in the front of the National Act New Zealand First Cabinet. So as a member of the National Parliament, uh, what, what do you think National Act New Zealand First should do? Because um, some of the comments from Act and New Zealand First were quite sympathetic to the idea of uh, densification and, and building mm. more houses. Although I sense, I've noticed a few what I think are crocodile tears in some of the, the comments. Um, Julianne, what, what, what would you like National Act New Zealand First to do now if, as we expect, the council comes back and does a reject and ultimately it's, this becomes a government decision? I don't know. I don't know if it has to go to cabinet. Bernard, did you, do you know it does? Because mm. I thought that possibly it's just something the minister signs off without taking to cabinet. True. Mm. I would have thought it's such a big political decision it would it would have to go to cabinet. I would have thought, particularly given the implications of for spending on infrastructure and public transport. I think the council uh, should reject 
specifically the recommendations that have downzoned huge areas and put character controls back in place. And I think the, the minister or the government should should also reject it. And I am really hopeful that we can get a positive outcome. Just one final question from me, Julianne, on the announcement today from the government that it is uh, repealing the fuel tax uh, or the fuel levy in Auckland, as it promised it would do if elected, but it appears to have done it without <laughs> without replacement revenues, which uh, has has not made the, the other brown in the... Uh, room Wayne Brown very happy at all. What's your what's your view on on that announcement today? It's irresponsible. It's short term. It's going to mean a funding gap for sure, and it will mean either rates need to be raised or there'll be projects cut from transport. Did you see Simeon Brown saying essentially they're going to get rid of all the bike work? The bike work was inappropriate. Apparently, inappropriate use of the um, of the fuel tax money. Well, it's just so absurd because the bike lanes are literally the highest value investment you can make in a city. Like it benefits the people driving cars more than trying to build more roads. But this fact seems completely lost on the national government Mm. and Simeon Brown in particular. Um, So it's just it's just a weird culture war thing. And if anything, I don't think it's going to lower people's petrol bills, but it might mean slightly higher profits for the petrol companies in Auckland. I'm not sure. Because when they put that regional fuel tax on, despite it only applying in Auckland, Auckland still had much lower petrol prices at the pump because it's a much more competitive environment Mm. than many Mm. places in the South Island or even in Wellington, I think. And it was interesting to note that when that went on, um, there was real downward pressure on the um, profits of the uh, fuel companies. It's one of the reasons that um, Z Energy felt under such pressure. It basically had to sell itself and shut down Marsden Point. Mm. So it's a very real challenge to the government's um, argument. Are you saying I don't have to drive to Pocono anymore to fill up, Bernard? No, no. You you need to be cycling to Pocono. (laughs) Peter, on your very sexy electric bike, which you should be buying. But um, one of the then opposition's claims to the government was that, particularly when it uh, made some changes to the fuel levies in the wake of uh, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, was that this was going to be captured by the fuel companies. Mm. (laughs) So when it goes off this time... Uh, we will be watching very closely and let's hope the government is saying lots of rude things behind the scenes and in letters yeah, yeah. to CEOs to actually make sure it gets gets through. Julian, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking about these important... Thanks, uh, Julian. It's really good to see you again. Always my pleasure. Always my pleasure. Yes. And I mean, I think I think Chloe's terrific, but you know, I think you and she would make a fantastic yes. triumvirate. Ah, thank you. Thank you. I feel very flattered. <laughs> This, yeah, no, there's some um, interesting uh, months ahead. Julianne, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Lovely to see you, and we'll talk again soon. Speak soon. See you. Bye. See you soon. Bye. So, Peter, we're um, at the end of the show. We're I back. think Julianne Genta is so interesting and terrific. And Yes, yes. You know, she, she, I don't know. She's I just... one of those um, people who is a, 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 essentially a, a transport urban planning nerdy geek who's turned into um, a politician who's able to make these issues relevant we've been yeah and also it's a great credit to you bernard that you get such lovely people like julianne you know there's some very inspiring people out there that we should we should get on more often yeah particularly at local government level i know the the amount of time that i spend on twitter swearing at um david seymour and 
that lawyer chap, Liam Hare. Yeah, you're making Elon Musk rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, he doesn't need it. He's got enough. Uh, because because we like the skateboarding dog story, I've got a mm. slightly old story, but it's because we, you know, because of your toothy pigs last week. Yep, yep. It's about a Jack Russell that surfs with its owner uh, in Chile. Oh. Actually, is it Chile or Peru? Peru. He's a Peruvian, a Peruvian Jack Russell Terrier. Now, I was looking the other day about choosing a choosing a doggy, and I realised that much as a Jack Russell might match my personality, uh, that it would be a real shit fight to have them. But now that I've seen Efruz in his little doggy uh, wetsuit surfing on the waves of Peru, oh. I thought maybe that isn't such a bad idea. Maybe maybe he would be better than a Schnauzer, but. That's right, and you could put them on the front of your your paddleboardy thing. Well, and... funny you should say that because you know my friend and I were swimming the other day just off her house at uh, Point Chev, just just along from um, Tyker's new place. Not you know hers is not a ten million dollar uh, waterfront thing, but there was a woman uh, on a paddleboard with an extremely large Labrador. <laughs> it was a Labrador or a Retriever lying very languidly on the front of the paddleboard. And being quite happy to be paddled across um, Point Shed oh, Beach, yeah. it was lovely. And then I thought of my paddleboard, the twelve-foot-long pencil that I stupidly bought, where I can barely stay upright on it, let alone with a bloody. <laughs> Mind you, if I had a Labrador straddled on it, maybe that would help. Ah, uh, yeah, some ballast, and and yeah. also, you know, um, if they move too much, you can blame them for falling off. You can blame. So, the Bernard, dog. it must be high tide is at uh, six forty. So you must be about to leap in leap in your electric car and drive over and peel off all of your clothes and throw yourself in at Palm Beach. Yeah, um, there will be a big crowd. Um, thank you. Very yeah, waiting. Much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all of your, all of the Hooners will be there. To, yeah. <laughs> Bernard, thank you so much. I'm so glad you're back and that your toothy ah, pigs are all right. And yeah. thank you, everybody, for coming and participating. And thanks to Simon for putting it together. Kaki te everyone. Brilliant. Thank you. See you. See you. Bye-bye. Bye.